The Apostle John saw a vision of a beast that looked like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. This beast, which is a political power, would fool people in the end times into building a religio-political system that would honor the first beast from the sea. Today we're going to look at who this beast is and how it has fulfilled this role in history and how today it is helping to build the one world system that is soon to come. everybody. Welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host today. Thanks so much for being with me on this wonderfully hot summer day. At least it is for me. It's about 108 degrees outside, which is just crazy. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So hope your weather is better than mine. But in either case, thanks for joining me. Today we're talking about the second beast that John saw in the book of Revelation. This is chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, he saw two beasts. The first one was from the sea, and we talked about that extensively, how that first beast that ruled for 1260 years was the papacy, was the religio-political system of the papacy. And in today's episode, we're going to be taking a deeper dive into a less understood and less discussed part of that chapter, chapter 13, which is the second beast. The second beast comes from the earth, and we'll get into it today, but this second beast looks like a lamb, which is Christianity. Only, only Christianity or Jesus was basically resembled by the lamb. So if this system, this political power looks like a lamb, it means it looks Christian, but yet it speaks like a dragon. And we know that political powers are beasts, and when beasts speak, they do so through their laws. So whatever this power is in history, it looks Christian, but yet it speaks or legislates in the opposite direction. And so that's really important to understand because ultimately that means we will get deceived. And if we read through Revelation 13, this second beast acts like a false prophet for the first beast, meaning that it fools the world into building an image to this first beast. Now, all these things sound a little hard to understand if we're thinking literally like a literal person as a false prophet. But again, all the episodes up until now, so if you're just joining me, please go review them, check them out. There's so many wonderful resources for you. But really, the point is this. A beast is a kingdom. It's a political power. And so it's not an individual acting as a false prophet to some other individual. It is a system that acts as a false prophet to another system. And this is the thing to understand from today. But nevertheless, this system, the second beast, fools people in the end times into building an image to the first beast. Now, an image is a representation. It is a, it, now in normal speaking, it's a statue, right? It's an image of something that represents a god or a goddess of some kind, and people worship it. So it's a representation. We were made in God's image. We're, bear, we're to bear his image. We are representatives of God. So images are used throughout the Bible, but when we look at this book of Revelation, which is very cryptic in its writing. It's very apocalyptic writing. It's very symbolic, right? So, so things aren't meant to be read literally. A beast is a kingdom. It's a power. And if the beast is acting like a false prophet, it means it's fooling people into building a representation of the first beast. Well, the first beast was what? It was a religio-political union. It was a union of church and state. That's what the papacy was. And we identified that extensively in the last few episodes. So go check those out if you haven't, especially the last two where we looked at Mystery Babylon, which is the final 
iteration of this system as it goes through time. And the reality is the second beast is going to fool people into building this final system of the woman riding the beast. So John saw many different kinds of beasts, but in the end, you have to understand it's really just the same system. Remember the very first vision that Daniel had of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a chronology of empires going from all the way from Babylon all the way to the end of time. It's, it's one statue, but it degenerates over time, and these empires take on the role of, of the others. They judge the previous one, but it, it gets integrated into this mishmash, which ultimately leads into this mystery Babylon, which is the woman riding the beast, or the woman being an apostate church riding the beast. The beast is the system. It's the political system. The kings of the earth will give their power to this system for a short while. Now, it's not going to be 1260 years again, thank God, but it will be a period of time where the mark of the beast will be implemented. This one world system is coming. It's not the big bad deep state. It's not the dark side. It is actually the false light that is coming and it's on the horizon that people think is going to save them. It's it's this whole false light system, this new age, progressive thought, light world order, white hats are in control, you know that whole narrative. That's what's actually going to be the thing to pay attention for. And people are moving back into the right. All this bad satanic stuff that's out in your face with transsexualism and satanic Grammy per, uh, performances and communism and just all these things that are just so obviously evil, they're designed to push, to push you and to revolt you into the desired outcome, which is a union of church and state. It is not wanting separation between church and state. It's wanting to be saved by a moral authority. And most people are putting their hopes in what? In a political person like Trump, in a party, in a new financial system, the QFS, the quantum financial system. That's what's going to save us. It's going to bring justice to everybody. Yeah, right. It's going to be the ultimate tracking device once the system changes into a blockchain system. You see how that works? You see how everything is changing over to the right now because the left has been so hardcore? The devil tries to move you between opposites constantly. You have to remember this. The, the Bible says, do not swerve to the right or to the left over 16 times, probably for a reason. And Christ told us to walk the narrow road. And I think that has a lot more meaning than we think it does, especially in today's world where everything is so polarized, it's polarized on purpose to get you to move into the desired outcome. So a little review for us before we jump into identifying who this second beast is, because it is very important. And I think, again, not too many people talk about this. Not too many people are aware because they see the words false prophet and they think, oh, it must be an individual. Because again, futurism which is very literal and fleshly, has invaded the church, and most people are taught a futurist eschatology. Futurism means that all these things that we need to worry about are way far in the future. There's no historical fulfillment of them or very little. The Antichrist is some charming guy that's going to walk into a physical temple in the future that the Jews are building. All these things are false. They're made up to distract you from the true Antichrist power on the earth. And we saw that in the last two episodes previous to this one where I talk about the woman riding the beast and Mystery Babylon. That was probably over four or five hours worth of content. Go check it out. Watch it in parts if you have to. 
but it is beyond a shadow of a doubt who the real Antichrist power is, and that's the papacy. The papacy, the Catholic Church, the institution, not Catholic people, but the institution, the papacy especially, who has placed itself between man and God, who has changed the times and laws, who has changed the gospels, made the plan of salvation desolate, all these things we talked about, and we gave ample evidence on all fronts, historically, politically, doctrine, it's very clear. There's no other power in history that fulfills this, but if you are focused as the Jesuits have conspired to make you focused, remember the Counter-Reformation is very real. It's still going on. The Counter-Reformation is not over until all the Protestant churches come back to the Mother Church. And we are at that threshold, as you will soon see in the next episode, actually, because we're going to talk about the image of the beast. But today we're talking more about historically and politically who this second beast is that comes out of the earth and helps this first beast to turn into the woman riding the beast by fooling people into building a representation, meaning to construct a, a representation of what used to be. What used to be? Well, it used to be a church-state union. So that's what this second beast is going to do for the world. It's going to make people construct a representation of a union between church and state. Now, that sounds really crazy if you've heard it for the first time, especially if you live in the United States, where supposedly there's a separation between church and state. But I will ask you to be patient and to stay with me because you will see that that is actually not the truth that the line between church and state is very blurred and it is only getting more and more blurred until one day people will want the line to disappear. So a little review for everybody, just in case you are joining us for the first time. The beasts in Daniel and Revelation all have the same chronology of empires. It goes from Babylon all the way to Rome and then the papacy. Out of Rome came this religio-political power, which is the papacy which is the, the union of church and state, but it's also the little horn power that Daniel saw in Daniel 7 and 8. And this is where John picks up his revelation of the first beast. The first beast that comes from the sea that rules for 1260 years is the little horn power that Daniel saw that came out of the fourth beast, which is Rome. Rome is the fourth beast. It aligns with the, the dream of the statue where the, the fourth empire was iron. Rome perfected the use of iron. It all matches the same chronology of empires. Now, John picks this up because he was living during the time of Rome, and he saw the power that came out of Rome, which is the papacy, and then eventually how it oscillated back and forth because he saw that the first beast, which is the papacy that ruled for 1260 years, which has all the qualities of these Babylonian Greco-Roman empires in it, it had a mortal wound. It seemed like it had a mortal wound, but then it came back to life and people wandered after the beast. So basically, this fulfilled in history. We looked at the art of war, how the Jesuits basically are the dark side, whereas the papacy is the light side. And, you know, how they basically created the French Revolution and the dialectic between left and right that would eventually lead people back into the Mother Church. We are in that dialectic right now, and we're coming to the apex of that. All the things of the last 150, 200 years are culminating in our generation. It's a crazy thing to admit, but it really is. If you look at history, they're culminating now. All this big, bad, deep state, world economic forum, communist, globalist stuff, it's on purpose 
being revealed because the desired outcome is a union of church and state. It's a return to good old nationalism and Christian nationalism specifically. All these things I'll be I'll be documenting in great detail. But today, again, we're just focusing on this second beast because it, what John saw is that so he saw the big picture of the first beast getting wounded, at least seeming like it got a mortal wound. It didn't actually get a mortal wound. And that happened in 1798 when the Pope was arrested and basically the papacy was declared to be at an end. So that's politically a mortal wound. But that mortal wound was healed in 1929, 131 years later, through the Lateran Pact. And ever since then, people have been wandering after the beast. The Pope is a superhero. He's meeting with all the... I was going to say celebrities. Yeah, celebrities, but also poli- you know political powers on either side of every conflict. He is the main man. And we looked at that last episode where we exposed Mystery Babylon for what it is, how the Pope is Pontifex Maximus. He's the the king and the high priest, which is basically a, a copycat of Christ. All these Roman emperors and pharaohs and all these empires had the same thing. They're, they had one man... That was both king and high priest, which again, it's a copy of the truth. If you know the truth, that Jesus is king and high priest, then it's no surprise that Satan would copy that through his systems. But this is what happened with the Pope. He got a mortal wound. I should say that the system got a mortal wound, seeming like it got a mortal wound. That mortal wound was healed, and the Pope got the papacy got their territories back in 1929. And ever since then, there's spiritually, the wound is still there, and it's been healing spiritually, meaning, when is it going to be healed fully? Well, John tells us with the woman riding the beast, when the, when the kings of the earth will give their power to this church-state union, and it'll be absolute and controlled, just like it was. But thank God, not for nearly as long of a time. But it will it will come, and we are moving in that direction. But understanding history piece by piece will help you see that this is not just some crazy idea, but actually happening. And again, not too many people are talking about this, but the woman riding the beast was very clear. First and foremost, the woman is sitting on seven hills or seven mountains. There's only one place in the world where a woman, which is a church, sits on seven hills, and that's Rome. And of course, there's so many other things we looked at that fulfilled why Mystery Babylon and why the woman riding the beast is Rome, is the papacy, So you can go check that out. But basically, that's the last two episodes. So during this whole time, this interim time where we are in transition from the wound being healed politically in 1929 until the woman riding the beast when the papacy basically comes back in full power as it was before, we are in this transition period right now where spiritually things are still healing. The Protestants are not yet united with the Mother Church. There's no one world religion just yet although it's all moving in that direction. And so understanding what powers are at play will help you not be deceived and be very sharp and aware of what's going on because today we are living in very deceptive times. People have been fooled into thinking that the big bad deep state is the enemy and when the deep state gets conquered and the quote-unquote light wins, that we've won. But that's exactly what the devil wants you to think. Because in reality, there are no good guys. There's only one good guy that has ever come in history to save humanity, and his name is Jesus Christ. No political person, especially not one that has millions or even billions of dollars, is up there where they are 
without being part of the club. And it's a big club and you and I aren't in it, right? So ultimately, if you know your history and if you know things about secret societies, if you know all these things that we've been talking about, then it should come as no surprise. There are no good guys. You have to get that into your mind that there are no good guys. And the real deception is going to be when this bad communist system is going to be defeated, or it seems like it'll be defeated. Ultimately, that's the beginning of this final phase where the light side will take control. We're going to go back to Christian nationalism. We're going to go back to seemingly like good family values, but there will be a moral authority that controls all these things, and that moral authority is going to be the papacy. Again, if this is the first time you've heard any of this stuff, I urge you to stay with me because even though it sounds crazy, it's the truth. So Revelation 13, let's take a look at it. This is verses 11 through 18. And this is where the false prophet, the second beast, arises. So let's take a look what John says. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it is allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So, a lot of people know most of these verses. They're pretty popular, obviously, especially with the mark of the beast and 666. And there's going to be a whole episode on that with the Mark of the Beast, but I'm going to say one thing now about the Mark of the Beast. The Mark of the Beast is not something physical. It is a spiritual reality because first and foremost, the Mark of the Beast is contrasted later and throughout this book of Revelation with the Mark of God, the seal of God that's on people's foreheads. So again, you have to remember Revelation is a symbolic book. What does it mean to have something on your forehead or on your hand? Well, if you look at other contrasting verses or, or relating verses throughout the Bible where the same kind of language is used about having a sign on your hand or between the frontlets of your eyes, these types of things are talking about things that you believe or things that you do, right? So ultimately, it's about having it in your... Remember, in Hebrew, the, the word for heart is actually the word for mind, so they didn't think like we do with our heart, but actually heart was mind. What's in your mind? What are you thinking? What is the essence of your beliefs? And so to have something on your forehead, it means like basically this is your identity. This is who you are, what you think, what you believe, what you allow into your spirit. So when you have a mark and that mark is the mark of someone else, that's basically you have basically committed to that ideology, to that belief. You are committed. Now, if it's just on your hand, that means you're not necessarily believing it, but you're doing it to avoid the consequences, which is going to be not buying or selling. 
Now, that's a pretty accurate picture of the future because there will be plenty of people who will gladly take the mark, whatever that happens to be. We'll look at it in a future episode. But whatever that happens to be, there's a couple good possibilities. But regardless, whatever it happens to be, there'll be plenty of people who will take it because they believe in it. And there will be people who don't really believe in it, but they'll do it just for the sake of comfort. In either case, they're foregoing their salvation because the mark of the Antichrist and the mark of God, the seal of God, are contrasted throughout the Bible. Now, of course, God is not going to physically put a seal on people's foreheads. It's talking about a spiritual reality where the elect, the people that God has chosen to save, will be sealed, meaning they will come into the truth and the truth will be in their heads, in their minds. It'll be part of who they are. So they're sealed. And so this is what this is talking about. So it's nothing physical. It's not a chip. It's not a whatever, you know, a jib-jab. Ultimately, those things may be used to enforce it. Certainly, we are moving into a digital kind of currency system. And of course, that's going to be used to control everything and enforce whatever spiritual reality they will be creating. There's a lot of candidates, like I said, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. So this power, this power, let's take a look at some things about this power. This power has the same power as the beast before it, the first beast. Now we know the first beast basically was the papacy and ruled the known world with an iron fist. So this power is a serious world power that comes up. Now it comes up out of the earth, out of all the beasts that both Daniel and John see, they all come out of the sea. And the sea, if you remember, resembles or symbolizes multitudes, nations, tongues, peoples, chaos, wickedness. So something coming out of the sea is basically from a populated area. And a lot of those world powers did come from very populated areas. So in contrast, this is the only beast, the second beast that comes out of the earth, meaning out of practically nowhere. It's not really a, a, a place where there's a lot of people. It's not a place where there were world powers that it came out of. It just came out of nowhere. So it has a world power status. In fact, probably the superpower of the world because the papacy was the superpower of the world. And it comes out of nowhere. So these are some interesting facts that we have to put into our minds. It also does great wonders. Like the whole thing from fire from heaven is a is a symbol of what we know from the Bible, like prophets, like Elijah, where he brought down fire from heaven to challenge the prophets of Baal and to basically prove them wrong and, and kill them. And so this, this power, this world power, seems to work great signs and wonders. So much so that it deceives people into worshiping the first beast. Now we know what the first beast was, which is the papacy, and so this power, this world power that comes out of nowhere will do certain things that basically make people move back into the mother church and pay homage to the papacy, to Catholicism, to the teachings of Catholicism, right? It looks like a lamb, which again, lamb is associated with Jesus, with Christianity. So it looks Christian, but it actually speaks like a dragon, it also has people make an, a representation, which is basically going to be a representative government. It's going to make a, a government that will be used throughout the world. And it's going to give life to this government. And this government will legislate, because again, it speaks. It will legislate against people who do not want to take the mark. So all these things point to a world power that basically is going to act in accordance with the first beast to bring people back into a religio political 
union, just as it was. Remember, history is fascinating, and history repeats itself. If we don't understand how history was in the past, then we will repeat it in the future. So what is this beast? Who is this beast is the question, right? Now, the two horns could also mean that there's two powers in this beast. Remember, kings were represented by horns. And so this beast also may have two kings within it. And that's reminiscent of something like maybe a president and vice president. That's a pretty common leadership structure in most of the Western world these days. And so we have a couple of things that point to a very clear answer with all these. A world power, a superpower, in fact, that came out of nowhere, probably around the time of the mortal wound, that helps people move back into this system that used to be, that works false signs and wonders, that has two horns, maybe it was two kings, vice president, president, certainly looks like a Christian situation, a Christian nation, but actually it's not. So all these things to me point to the United States. And I think it's very obvious if you have followed me so far, because I've mentioned it before a couple times. And today we're going to look at how this actually plays out in history, how the United States of America is acting as the false prophet and how it will act as the false prophet to bring people back into the mother church. Now, again, this sounds crazy to you if you've heard it the first time. Please stick with me because I'm going to justify all of these things because they really are the truth. Now, I want to review a little history, which is that in 1798, we talked about how the papacy received a mortal wound from the general of Napoleon who basically arrested the Pope, declared the papacy did an end. I mean, this was unseen in something like a world power that was ruling for 1260 years. And yet it seemed like the papacy was gone, but it really wasn't. The Jesuits were also banned for quite some time, about 100 years, maybe a little less. I don't remember the exact time, but they were banned for a while. And so all these things seem like, gosh, you know, this power has come to an end. But in reality, they were working from the shadows with secret societies, with the dialectic of left versus right. Remember, before the French Revolution, the main power was just a monarchy. And the monarchy was kind of a problem to the whole situation, especially in light of the Reformation. The Reformation was a grassroots movement that was a real problem for the church because grassroots movements cannot be stopped with monarchies and authoritarian rule because they just take over. You have to start your own counter grassroots movement. And that's why the counter reformation was started. That's why the Jesuits were started. And that's when all this futurist eschatology was created to take attention off the papacy and put it onto Israel and gosh, all the, the chosen people and what's going to happen in Israel and the third temple being rebuilt. All these things are deceptions. And for good reason, because they are trying to take your eye off of the true Antichrist power. And so you had the dialectic of left versus right beginning in the French Revolution. Of course, it was probably around before that. But the real point is that politically speaking, the French Revolution brought out atheism, which led to communism, secularism, you know, libertarian philosophy, uh, liberal philosophy. All these things were in contrast to what? into contrast to nationalism, conservatism, you know, the right side of things. And so you had starting in the 1700s, late eight, late 1700s, early 1800s, this duality that started to ping pong, left and right, left and right, communism, nationalism. 
and and this led to various world wars, obviously World War II. It was nationalism versus communism, and guess who won? The communists won. And we've been in that reality since then, and that reality is now changing. And we'll talk more and more about this as time goes on, but that reality is changing. But moving back to history, around 1798, what other things happened? Well, we know in the 1600s, the pilgrims and the Puritans came to the Americas. And of course, they were Protestants. They were genuine Protestants and Christians. But America wasn't a nation. It wasn't a political power until the late 1700s. In 1776, of course, was the Declaration of Independence. And in 1778, it was recognized by France as a world power. And so when the pilgrims and the Puritans were in America, it wasn't a world power. It wasn't considered a world power. It was just a bunch of colonies and settlements. But by the time the 1700s came along, America was now a nation, and this nation was very different than what the original people who came, who were the pilgrims and Puritans, very different. It had become ruled by secret society values, Luciferian ideals, and people who, the founding fathers, who were not Christians, and in fact, quite the opposite, and I'll tend to prove that. But again, let's look at the parallels. This country, the United States, had Christian beginnings, right? It looks like a lamb. But shortly after, when it actually became a political power, it came out of nowhere, by the way. America wasn't that populated, and it certainly wasn't a place for world powers. So it came out of the earth, right? So it matches that description. And it it spoke like a dragon. We're going to see how it spoke through the various letters of the Founding Fathers, even through various things that are part of American culture and America's founding and it's America's legislation. We're going to look at these things because it indeed has spoken like a dragon. And of course, in the next episode, we're going to zero in on the image of the beast and how exactly is America acting like a false prophet to bring people back into seeing that the union of church and state is actually a good thing, that what the papacy had for 1260 years was actually good, and we need to go back to that. We need to go back to the system that Constantine created between the religion and politics, where there's just one system where there's no line. It sounds crazy. It really does, because we've grown up in a system where there's this dialectic where you have to separate church and state. But I will argue again and again that this was created on purpose so that ultimately there would be a reason to come back to church and state, because the separation of church and state, which is the model that all the other European countries adopted, has led to communism, secularism, liberalism, and crazy leftist policies on purpose so that people would be just disgusted and want to go back to a union of church and state where there's nationalism, Christian values. But again, Christian, what kind of Christian? And my answer is going to be that the Pope is going to be waiting with wide arms with arms wide open to be the moral authority to shepherd the church back to light and reason. But in reality, it's going to be the false light of Lucifer with the mark of the beast. So America's history, we covered that, but again, also, another thing to mention is the 17 to 1800s was the Enlightenment era. We're going to look at that quite a bit today, where you had a lot of people like the Founding Fathers who were Freemasons, Illuminati members. We'll talk about George Washington. We'll talk about Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Madison, all these people and what they believed and thought and what they were part of. 
And of course, you have similarities between the Vatican and the Washington, D.C. with their architecture. You have obelisks. You have this Roman, Greco-Roman architecture, classic architecture. And it's just way too reminiscent of what it means to build an image to the beast, a representation. America is somewhat of a representation of this papal power. People don't realize the architecture and the union and the, and the communion that the Pope has had with the presidents and the submission that the presidents have had to the Pope. It's all in the background because people are too focused on Israel. But I intend to bring that to light to you today so that you can see the truth. You also have in America today, as we speak, megachurches, televangelism, word of faith, hypercharismatic gospels. All these things are undoing the Protestant Reformation and bringing people back into the Mother Church. The Catholics were the ones who created the charismatic movement. And I'll look at that in the next episode when we look at the image of the beast. But again, these are all, they look things that are Christian, but they're really calling on a false spirit. There's a false spirit leading all these things, and it's not the Holy Spirit. It is an Antichrist spirit, and I will intend to prove that to you, because this spirit is what people are unifying around. It's a spirit of deception. It's a spirit of certain experiences and mysticism rather than truth and doctrine. If I believe the transubstantiation is satanic and the Catholic Church believes that unless you believe and accept transubstantiation, you can't be saved, there's no way you can unify over that doctrine. But if I said, oh, I had this spiritual experience and I felt such and such and... The papacy says, yeah, we have that too. Oh my gosh, we should we have the same God. We should totally unite. Do you see how all this works and why you have to have discernment? But you also have a lot of things like the union between church and state and politics, which is very blurred in the United States. And again, I'll cover all this stuff. The Supreme Court is mostly Catholic. You have, again, the Pope with all the presidents on either side of the aisle, whether they're Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. You have this dialectic of left and right that is... Con you never have a third party in the United States. You notice that? It's always two parties, which again is reminiscent of the two horns. But in either case, this is worth investigating. There's a lot of things about the United States that should raise our eyebrow even just a little bit that may be pointing to this prophecy being fulfilled, the prophecy of the second beast. So again, today many people are patriots and they think that... America was a Christian nation. It was founded as a Christian nation. We're a Christian nation. We're going to go back to it being a Christian nation. And I tell you, no, that's not true. The Puritans were Protestants. The Pilgrims were Protestants. They were true Protestants. But America was not a nation at that time. They were just colonies. When America was recognized as a world power in 1778, it had become a nation. And at that point, the Luciferian, secret society, Illuminati, Enlightenment, thinkers had already taken over. And I'll prove that to you. We're going to look at every one of the founding, most of the founding fathers, and see what they thought and what they believed. And you'll see for yourself that America was never founded as a Christian nation. It was founded as a Luciferian experiment that would bring the power back to the papacy. Again, it sounds so crazy if you've heard it for the first time, but hopefully it won't sound as crazy as we move forward. But, you know, there's a lot of patriots today also that are being deceived by this dialectic between left versus right, and they're putting their hopes and their hope for salvation in a political solution. And a person like Trump or a system 
that we need to go back to the Constitution or we can go back to all these things. These things have nothing to do with God. In fact, the deception that's coming, look, I voted for Trump in 2020. I, like many people, I was a different person at that time. Thank God that I've changed because the Lord has shown me the truth. But I was a different person. Nonetheless, I wanted to believe that there was some good in the world, that there were some people that maybe somebody like Trump, who was a rogue operator and all the stories that they tell you, they wanted to come and help this country and help the people. But in reality, nobody cares about you. It seems that way, but it's not true. There is nobody that is ever going to save you other than Jesus Christ. And the system that is coming where you're going to have a return back to all these things that seem good, like conservatism and family values, it's going to be the final phase of this system. And the people who are deceived, look, the the left side, all the hardcore leftists and liberals, they were deceived by the left, by the quote-unquote dark side, by the black hats, all in quotation marks. You remember who wears a black hat and you remember who wears a white hat. It's the Pope and the Jesuits. But the people who are on the right side, the patriots, they're being deceived by the right. Both sides are deceiving their own kind. Because again, the Bible tells you not to swerve to the left or to the right. Don't go to these extremes. Go by what the Bible tells you. The Bible is naturally conservative. So we don't need a constitution. We don't need a declaration of independence. We don't need republic. We don't need anything. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the Bible. We have Jesus. This is what we need. And of course, there will be a day where Jesus will be ruling as king forever. And that'll be the perfect government. But until then, there's no man or system or plan or QFS or quantum financial system that's going to save you. And all these things are just deceptions. And most of the people that are going to be deceived next are the patriots, the people who really care about their country, because they're going to be fooled into a nationalist, Christian nationalist system, which is going to be a union of church and state. Remember that the devil is all about duality. Walk the narrow path. So today we're going to look at the founding fathers, Jefferson, Madison, Franklin, Washington. Were they Christians? We'll find out. We're also going to look at the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and how maybe this replaced the Bible as a secular, atheistic document. We'll also look at the Statue of Liberty and its origins, which are just so fascinating. And of course, the next two episodes, we're going to focus on the image of the beast and things like the charismatic movement, how it's undoing Protestantism. Uh, We're going to look at the false signs and wonders that are coming out of the second beast. And there's so many, there's so many. The Passion of the Christ, we're going to do a whole highlight on that. That was the most grossing selling movie Christian movie of all time, and it's loaded with Catholic subliminal programming to bring people back into the Mother Church. These are the types of false signs and wonders that are being worked that people are marveling after the beast. They're marveling. I mean, people were marveling after this movie, and yet it was a Catholic propaganda subconsciously programming your mind to accept the coming system. Crazy. I used to, you know, I, I used to love that movie. I used to watch it every Easter. And um, after really doing my research, not anymore. And I will encourage you to do the same. But we'll look at the research first and see, so you can make up your own mind. We're going to look at also the counterfeit spirit taking over the churches. We'll look at ecumenism and how the line between church and state is being blurred. All of that stuff is going to happen in the next two episodes, so stick with me. But today, we're going to look at the beginnings of this second 
peace, the world power that comes from the earth. Because it's the United States. And a quick quote from Thomas Paine, who was one of the founding fathers, which I found to be just so appropriate. He said, it is the duty of every man as far as his ability extends to detect and expose delusion and error. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. It is my duty to share this with you because I've come across it in my own journey. And I hope that it will be your duty to take it to heart and share it with others so that they are not deceived because not too many people are talking about this. Not too many people are focusing on the wrong things because they're being distracted, focusing on Israel, focusing on the third temple being rebuilt, when in reality these things are just part of the grand delusion that is coming. Imagine if all of this is going to culminate in a false appearance of Christ, where Satan will masquerade as the Son of God. This is what the second century Christians believed. And if that's going to come true, how many people will gladly take the mark of the beast? How many people will think we're in a golden age? We are in the millennial reign. We're already in the millennial reign. The millennial reign is now. It's a spiritual reality. It's not a physical time of prosperity for a thousand years that Christ will be ruling physically in Jerusalem. This is a fleshly way of interpreting the Bible. This is the way the Talmud interprets the end times. And so we have to, as Christians, have discernment because this may very well happen. And in that case, how many people are going to be deceived? Vast amount of people. But let's take a look at some founding fathers and whether they were Christian or not. Let's start with Thomas Jefferson. So there's a lot of things that you can look up on Thomas Jefferson. His letters are all over the internet, but we're going to look at notes on the state of Virginia. And again, I'll cite my sources in the comments or the uh, description for this episode, but we're going to take a look at what Thomas, or Je- Thomas Jefferson thought about Christianity. Here's a quote. Had not the Roman government permitted free inquiry, Christianity could never have been introduced. Had not free inquiry been indulged at the era of the Reformation, the corruptions of Christianity could not have been purged away. Millions of innocent men, women, and children since the introduction of Christianity have been burnt, tortured, fined, imprisoned, yet we have not advanced one inch towards uniformity. What has been the effect of coercion to make one half the world fools and the other half hypocrites to support roguery and error all over the earth. Pretty strong words. So Thomas Jefferson thinks that Christianity basically made half of the world fools and the other ones rogues. And so ultimately, Thomas Jefferson was not very fond of Christianity. Now, he wasn't wrong. In some sense, he wasn't wrong because to him, Christianity was Catholicism. And so you see, even the founding fathers knew their history of who this power Throughout history has been, has persecuted people, innocent people, has taken innocent lives, put them to the death. The founding fathers knew. Unfortunately, as you'll see from all these articles we're going to be looking at, they conflated, they put together Christianity as a way of life that Jesus came to tell us through the gospel and Catholicism as an institution. They saw those things as one and the same, which they are not. Most certainly they are not, and people still do that today. They know the history of the Catholic Church, and they say, see, Christianity was just a a psyop. Well, no, it's not. The Bible is true. It's Catholicism that is the beast, and as we have identified it over and over again. This is a letter from Thomas Jefferson to Joseph Priestley, who we're going to look at Joseph Priestley a little bit more in detail, but this is dated March 21st, 1801. This was the real ground of all the attacks on you, 
those who live by mystery and charlatanry, fearing you would render them useless by simplifying the Christian philosophy, the most sublime and benevolent but the most perverted system that ever shone on man, endeavor to crush your well-earned and well-deserved fame. So, we'll get more into this about what it actually is talking about, but Jefferson wanted to rewrite the Bible. He wanted to rewrite Christian. He, they basically thought, you know what, there's some good stuff in Christianity, but there's things that I don't like. And who's a better op- option to rewrite all of this than Joseph Priestley? And we'll look at who Joseph Priestley is. But you can tell from that comment what Thomas Jefferson ta- thought about Christianity. Here's another one from Thomas Jefferson to Benjamin Rush. This is April 1803. To the, cor- to the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself, like we were just saying. I'm a Christian in the only sense in which he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines, in preference to all others, ascribing to himself every human excellence and, be- and believing he never claimed any other. So pay attention. The language here is a little older because it's, you know, couple hundred years ago, but pay attention to this writing because Thomas Jefferson says, oh, I'm a Christian, but then he defines that in the sense in which basically you believe his doctrines in preference to all others, ascribing to himself every human excellence and believing he never claimed any other. So Thomas Jefferson did not believe in the divinity of Christ. He believed, like many New Age people believe today and occultists believe, that Jesus was just a teacher. He was just a good teacher with some good ideas but, oh, no, 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 he wasn't God. He wasn't. He never claimed to be God, which is a total lie because the Bible on countless occasions testifies to the fact that Jesus claimed to be God and to be equal with God. That's why the Jews wanted to kill him. That's why, in fact, they, they submitted him to be crucified because he made himself equal with God. So anybody who denies that is really just not being honest with the scriptures because Jesus healed people. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal to God. He claimed to forgive sins. Jesus is God. And so this is the thing. But moving on, I received from Dr. Priestley his little treatise of Socrates and Jesus compared. This being a section of the general view I had taken of the field, it became a subject of reflection while on the road and unoccupied otherwise. The result was to arrange in my mind a syllabus or outline of such an estimate of the comparative merits of Christianity as I wish to see executed by someone of more leisure and information for the task than myself. This is just what I was saying, is that Thomas Jefferson wanted to rewrite Christianity in his own way, and basically he wanted Priestley to do it. And he's just communicating that to Benjamin Rush. Now, here is a letter of Thomas Jefferson's to John Adams. And we'll look at this one now. So this is what he says. But the whole history of the of these books is so defective and doubtful that it seems vain to attempt minute inquiry into it. And such tricks have been played with their text and with the texts of other books relating to them. They have, we have a right from that cause to entertain much doubt what parts of them are genuine. So he's talking about the Bible. In the New Testament, there is internal evidence that parts of it have proceeded from an extraordinary man and that other parts are of the fabric of very inferior minds. It is as easy to separate these parts as to pick out diamonds from dunghills. So what's he saying? He's saying the scripture can't be trusted. It's not the word of God. There's some things that are of value, but you, all you can tell the some parts are just, you know, really um, poorly written or, or stupid, right? So basically he doesn't believe that scripture is the word of God, that it's been corrupted, which again, it's been, 
This is as old as time, guys. I mean, people still use this argument today. This is what the snake told Eve to justify his lie. He he cast doubt on on God's word. This is one of the main tactics of the enemy, is to cast doubt on God's word. Did God say that you wouldn't die? Slither, slither. I mean, this is basically what the snake does. And we see that these founding fathers, and this is just Thomas Jefferson, but we see these founding fathers are speaking like a dragon, right? You see how this is now starting to shape up? It looks like a lamb. Thomas Jefferson said, oh, I'm a Christian. A lot of Christian values. We, you know, we love Jesus. But then again, you're actually speaking like a dragon. You don't believe God's word. You don't believe in the divinity of Christ. And we'll see you don't, you don't believe in the Trinity. All these types of things that are essential to Christianity, these people rejected. So they look like a lamb, the system that's forming is formed by people that look like a lamb but speak like a dragon. One more. Let's take a look here at the Jefferson Bible. Gosh, this is a good one. The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible, is one of the two religious works constructed by Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson compiled the manuscripts but never published them. The first, The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, was completed in 1804, but no copies exist today. The second, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, was completed in 1820 by cutting and pasting with a razor and glue numerous sections from the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. Right away, that should be a red flag for anybody who's a sincere Christian. Early draft. In an 1803 letter to Joseph Priestley, which I believe we read a little bit of, Jefferson stated that he conceived the idea of writing his view of the Christian system in a conversation with Benjamin Rush during 1798 to 1799. He proposes beginning with a review of the morals of the ancient philosophers, moving on to the deism and ethics of the Jews, and concluding with the principles of a pure deism taught by Jesus. Omitting the question of his deity, Jefferson explains that he does not have the time and urges the task on Priestley as the person best equipped to accomplish it. And we'll see about who Priestley is and what his beliefs are, but basically he was the one that Jefferson saw for the job. Content. What's in this book? Consistent with his naturalistic outlook and intent, most supernatural events are not included in Jefferson's heavily edited compilation. So no miracles, no feeding the 4,000 or 5,000, no walking on water, no calming the storms, no resurrecting Lazarus. Therefore, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth begins with an account of Jesus' birth without references to angels, genealogy, or prophecy. Miracles, references to the Trinity and to the divinity of Jesus, and Jesus' resurrection are also absent from his collection. And that's pretty much all you need to really know about that, because ultimately this is what? This is a false gospel. So, Thomas Jefferson did, rejected the divinity of Jesus. He rejected the preexistence of Christ as God. He created a false gospel of Jesus by ripping out pages from the Bible and gluing them and basically mixing them with Greek philosophy and basically creating his own narrative that he believed was right. Now imagine, imagine what kind of conscience you have to have to come to the point where you believe that you can rip pages out of the Bible and cut them together and create your own version, which is the truth. Are you really being guided by the Holy Spirit? Are you a born-again Christian to do that? I don't think so. so. Thomas Jefferson was definitely not a Christian. He didn't see a difference between religion, Catholicism, the papacy, and true Christianity. He didn't see a difference. He saw Christianity as an institution and 
not as a true lifestyle that Jesus came to teach, which in some sense he's right about the institution aspects. All these people will write, and it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, just adds more evidence to the reality that the papacy is the beast. Stop looking to Israel. Stop looking at future antichrists. The antichrist power has been on the earth for a very long time, and it's the papacy. And even before that, it's always been the same system going through different iterations. We are now in the final couple of iterations, this Roman Babylonian system. But Thomas Jefferson believed man can ultimately save himself and that God was just this impersonal, naturalistic, pantheistic force. He didn't come to die for your sins. Man wasn't inherently sinful. This is another thing you'll learn with all these people is that they reject the idea of total depravity. They reject the idea that man is sinful and without God we are nothing. Ultimately, that's the underpinning of all this because if you believe that man is inherently good, that he can basically save himself. He doesn't need God. And that's, again, what the serpent told Eve. You are the one who knows good and evil. You don't need God for that. And so if you think you know what's good and evil, then you will tear pages out of the Bible and try to recreate your own story of Jesus. That's speaking like a dragon. So scripture reminds us a couple of things. First and foremost, that Cain worshiped God in his own way. Now, Cain believed in God. Cain wasn't an atheist. But Cain worshiped God in his own way. He didn't want to obey what God had asked. He wanted to do it his own way. And what happened? Well, Cain was rejected. And so we have the sons of Cain, the people who are disobedient ones who have been given the earth, basically. But they'll be judged. We also know from many places in the Bible Second Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Don't accept any false gospels. Galatians 1, verse 8, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Revelation 22, 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. So pretty serious words for people who are creating false gospels, false narratives of Jesus, false ways to be saved or false truths. These are pretty serious things. You can't add or take away to the Bible like that. But yet, if you are not born again, you're not being guided by the Holy Spirit, you will do such a thing because you're being guided by a false spirit. Now, we know also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, that who is the liar but he who denies that is Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. John has several ways that he defines Antichrist. But Antichrist is not the Antichrist, but rather an Antichrist, somebody who is against Christ, in the place of Christ, fighting against, opposing Christ. And by this definition, there's several of them, but this is one of them, which is somebody is basically denying that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen Messiah to wash away our sins through his sacrifice. By this definition, Thomas Jefferson is Antichrist because he denies that Jesus was God. He denies that man is sinful and needs to be redeemed. He denies that Jesus is the Messiah that came to do that work. 
So he's Antichrist in his way that he speaks and does things. Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian, even though he thought himself to be. He was a deist. He was a naturalist, a humanist, an Enlightenment occult-era thinker. So, one down, a few to go. Let's look at Joseph Priestley. Now, Joseph Priestley was famous for discovering oxygen. He was a scientist. He's also a theologian. He was a big Enlightenment-era thinker. Remember, the Enlightenment was happening during that time. 1700s, 1800s, Enlightenment was a big deal. And really, as you study the Enlightenment, you'll understand who was behind the Enlightenment, what spirit, what force was behind the Enlightenment. Remember who brings the light, at least the false light. We know the true light comes from Christ, but there is also a false light, and that is the light behind the Enlightenment, as you'll soon see many, many examples. But Joseph Priestley was one of the founding fathers. He was very influential. He's very respected by the founding fathers, and he was just very influential around the time. So let's read a couple things about what he believed and who he was. This is from Monticello. Joseph Priestley was an English theologian, natural philosopher, political theorist, and chemist. He was a prolific writer whose subject matter ranged across theology, philosophy, history, politics, science, and grammar. Priestley's liberal views made public life in 18th century England increasingly difficult. He chose to emigrate to America in the spring of 1794. He settled with his wife and sons and his friend Thomas Cooper in Northumberland, Pennsylvania. In later years, Thomas Jefferson remembered Joseph Priestley with reverence. No man living had a more affectionate respect for him, Jefferson avowed. In religion, in politics, in physics, no man has rendered more service. Wow. Some pretty big words. So Thomas Jefferson thought that Joseph Priestley was a pretty big deal. Obviously had a lot of respect for the man and what he believed. But let's see what Joseph Priestley believed. We know in 1782, he published a history of the corruptions of Christianity. He's published several volumes on this. In 1783, he published a book called A General View of the Arguments for the Unity of God and Against the Divinity and Preexistence of Christ from Reason, from the Scriptures, and from History. So he argued for against, he argued against the preexistence and divinity of Christ, using Scripture, mind you. So again, the devil knows the Bible better than any of us, and he always uses scripture to try to sway you because he's using God's word and twisting it so that he can gain favor and trust. But let's look at a document called The Enlightenment and Joseph Priestley's Disenchantment with Science and Religion. This was an older document, but there's basically a lot of interesting things in here about Joseph Priestley, and you can look at them. The doctrine of the Trinity provides an interesting example of Priestley's approach. According to him, let's see what according to Priestley what he thinks. Here it is. The opinion of three divine persons constituting one God is strictly speaking an absurdity or contradiction. Three persons possessed of all the attributes of divinity must be as properly three gods as three persons possessed of all human attributes must be three men. And to say that three gods are only one God is as much a contradiction as to say that three men though they differ from one another as much as three men can do, are not three men, but only one man. So Joseph Priestley believed that the Trinity was something that was absurd. And of course, he didn't understand it. I don't think anybody fully understands it, because if you could, then it wouldn't be God, now would it? God is not to be understood. God is to be appreciated, loved, honored, respected, praised. We can't understand God. God is an infinite being. God is beyond anything we can ever fit into our tiny little brains. The Bible is very clear that God is 
one God in three divine persons. Those persons were revealed throughout Scripture and most certainly revealed when Jesus became incarnate through the baptism, through the transfiguration, through other times. You know, the Jews even had a teaching up until the second century. Conveniently enough, right after Jesus, they decided to get away, get rid of this teaching, but it was a teaching in Hebrewism and Judaism. Judaism wasn't really founded until much later after Christianity, so I, I'm hesitant to use that word, but we'll, we'll say Judaism colloquially. Judaism believed in two powers in heaven. This was the teaching that was trying to reconcile the idea that in the Old Testament you had the angel of the Lord, who basically received worship, was an, an incarnate form of God of some kind. He wrestled with Jacob. He was in the garden walking around. He appeared to Abraham, to Moses. He received worship. He claimed to be God. He claimed God's actions. And yet, he spoke in the third person of God as well. And it was interchangeable. So it was confusing, rightly so, because it was painting a shadow and picture of what Jesus would reveal with his arrival into our timeline, which is the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is not something the Catholic Church invented. It's not pagan because there's no pagans that ever worshiped one God in three divine persons. They worshiped three gods. But a trinity doesn't mean three gods, okay? If you have one God, he's a spirit. God is spirit. Scriptures tells us that God is spirit. Joseph Priestley here is making a false comparison because three people are physical beings. Of course, you can't have three people as one person, okay? That, that doesn't work because we're physical beings. But God is spirit, and he's infinite. He's omnipresent. He's not constrained by the same constraints that physical human beings are. And so the things that work for God, of course, we're not going to understand or even work for us. So that's a whole other story. There's a whole series I want to make on the Trinity, but ultimately the Trinity is not pagan. These are false teachings, but Joseph Priestley rejected the Trinity. If you reject the Trinity, then you reject also the preexistence of Christ and the divinity of Christ, and therefore you reject the gospel which is very important, as we saw in his books that I previously mentioned. Now let's look a little bit at um, some teachings of Joseph Priestley's. This is called, let's take a look here. Joseph Priestley, this is from Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, and there's a lot here that we can take a look at. But these are some his teachings and beliefs, but Science was an important part of Priestley's rational Christianity, in quotations. In, institu in Institutes of Natural and Revealed Religion, he described how he rejected the gloomy Calvinist doctrines of, the na of natural depravity of man and the inscrutable will of a vengeful God. So right away, this should be a red flag for you. Again, these people rejected the idea that man is inherently sinful that we need to be redeemed, that we cannot, that nobody seeks after God. This is what the Bible says, that the heart is desperately wicked. No one seeks after God. Nobody is good except God. We cannot make the first move. We need God to intervene in our lives, just like he did for everybody in the Bible. When Saul was on the road to Damascus, he was doing his thing and killing Christians. Then Jesus appeared to him and forever changed his life. This is the same thing throughout Scripture. Moses denied Christ, basically, five times. He said, I don't want to go. Find somebody else. What happened with Moses? He went. Gideon, the judges, the various leaders, David, 
the prophets all came up with excuses. If God had responded to mankind, there would nobody would ever have done anything. It was God that did the work. But he did the work because we are depraved by nature. We don't go after God. We don't see God. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is what the Bible says. But moving on. So he, he rejected he rejected this idea of total depravity, which is a teaching of the Bible that we are depraved by nature and that we do not look after God. And he also rejected the idea that you can't scrutinize God's will. So right away I should tell you where he stands and who is speaking through him. But again, moving on. Priestly used psychology Priestly used psychologist and, and liberal Anglican David Hartley's doctrine of association of ideas to support his view that mankind's perfectibility was the inevitable consequence of a growing awareness of man's place in a deterministic system of benevolence. In a history of corruptions of Christianity, Priestly claimed that the doctrines of materialism, determinism, socianism, which is Unitarianism, were consistent with a rational reading of the Bible. Unitarianism is basically denying the Trinity. He insisted that Jesus Christ was a mere man who preached the resurrection of the body rather than the immortality of a non-existent soul. Now this part, he's, <laughs> this is where they get you with some of the stuff is true, some of it's not. That last part, he's right about. There is no immortality of the soul. Jesus preached the resurrection and so did the apostles. All the Old Testament writers believed in the resurrection. They didn't believe in this spirit world that you go to with an immortal soul. This is a pagan belief. All the pagan nations believed in the immortality of the soul because they were deceived. Because if you believe in an immortality of the soul, then you fail to realize how dependent you are on God and how you need to repent so that you can live. You see how that works? This is a lie from the Garden of Eden. You shall not die. That's another series as well. So he's right about that. But everything else he's wrong about. Jesus Christ is not just a mere man. He is God. So he denies that Jesus is the Christ. Remember from John, we looked at who is Antichrist, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So Joseph Priestley is also Antichrist. He rejects the divinity and preexistence of Christ. He rejects the Trinity. He rejects the idea that we are depraved. So therefore, he believes that man can ultimately save himself. You can do it. It's up to you. And, of course, he rejects the idea that God's judgment is perfect. He didn't like the idea that you couldn't scrutinize God's will, that, you know, God can't have vengeance. You know, why can't we scrutinize all the times when God has had vengeance and enacted justice? Of course, this is a Gnostic way of thinking. Gnosticism asserts that the God of the Old Testament was an evil God, and actually Jesus is the good God that came to save us from the evil God. But this is just a really ignorant way to read the Bible. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this idea that we need to, that, that the Old Testament is an old, an evil God, that you know he's just vengeful and full of wrath. First off, there are so many times in the Old Testament where God is merciful and kind. But remember, this was before the cross. God is a holy and just being, perfectly just. The fact that he let the world live and he made the rain fall on the wicked and the righteous alike is a testament to his mercy all of those years. In fact, so many times was God merciful that if the cross hadn't happened, people would question whether God was truly just or not. But the cross happened to prove that God is very serious about sin, that he would crucify his only son 
on our behalf and subject him to such horrible pain that we deserve. So ultimately, anybody who thinks that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament has not really read the Bible, or rather, they haven't understood it because they are being blinded by the God of this world. So Joseph Priestley, what's the conclusion? The conclusion that Joseph Priestley is also antichrist based on what the Bible says. Now, other founding fathers, we have Madison, Ben Franklin, and Washington. Let's take a look at them because there's some interesting stuff there. This is a, um, this is from the Bill of Rights Institute, and it's called Memorial and Remonstrance from 1785, and it's by James Madison, and we want to see what he says about Christianity. During almost 15 centuries has the legal establishment of Christianity been on trial. What have been its fruits? More or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, ignorance and servility in the laity, in both superstition, bigotry, and persecution. Inquire of the teachers of Christianity for the ages in which it appeared in its greatest luster. Those of every sect point to the ages prior to the incorporation of with civil policy. Again, the language is kind of old English style here, but what he's talking about is actually very true. But again, he's conflating Christianity with institution. He recognized that Christianity for the last 15 centuries basically was, since it was incorporated by Constantine into a religio-political system, has been a corrupt system. But that doesn't mean Christianity, as in the gospel, is corrupt. The gospel is the truth, and it's very pure because it's the word of God. But Christianity, rightly so, recognized by Madison, is a corrupt system. And of course, He's very aware of when the church-state union began. So they were very aware of the truth. But that truth today seems so far away because most people are focusing on Israel. Let's look at what Ben Franklin thought. But James Madison obviously did not really take kindly to Christianity. So this is Wikipedia, Benjamin Franklin. You can find a lot of good stuff. Go to Early Life and a little bit lower than that, you see a section on Freemasonry. In 1730 or 1731, Franklin was initiated into the local Masonic Lodge. He became a Grand Master in 1734, indicating his rapid rise to prominence in Pennsylvania. The same year, he edited and published the, the first Masonic book in America, a reprint of James Anderson's Constitutions of the Freemasons. He was the Secretary of St. John's Lodge in Philadelphia from 1735 to 1738. Franklin remained a Freemason for the rest of his life. Now, if you know anything about Freemasonry and what does it mean to be a Grand Master and at the top, who they pay their allegiance to, who they worship, then that's all you need to know. But let's continue and see if we find some more stuff on good old Ben Franklin on the $100 bill. Okay, this is under political, social, and religious views. So there's a little section here. According to David Morgan, Franklin was a proponent of religion in general. He prayed to powerful goodness, in quotations, and referred to God as the infinite. That's interesting. John Adams noted that he was a mirror in which people saw their own religion. The Catholics thought him almost a Catholic. The Church of England claimed him as one of them. The Presbyterians thought him of him as a Presbyterian, and the Friends believed him a wet Quaker. Whatever else Franklin was, concludes Morgan, he was a true champion of generic religion. Now, isn't that interesting? I don't think Franklin was a Christian. We know that for sure because he was a grand master in the Freemasonry. But he was all for organized religion. 
which is a very interesting thing. The Catholics couldn't, I mean, can tell he was practically Catholic. So this is a very interesting thing to take note of in light of the system that was founded by these people that looks like a lamb, but yet speaks like a dragon. In 1790, just about a month before he died, Franklin wrote a letter to Ezra Stiles, president of Yale University, who had asked him his views on religion. Let's take a look. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see, but I apprehended as a received various corrupt changes. And I have, with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts as to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and I think it needless to, be, to busy myself with it now, when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble." In other words, I'm not going to be bothered to really investigate the gospel because I'm just going to die and I'll find out the truth. Well, my friend, you will find out the truth because the next thing you're going to be aware of is being resurrected to the lake of fire. But who knows? May God have mercy on me, on Ben Franklin's soul. Let's move on. I see no harm, however, in its being believed if that belief has a good consequence, as it probably has, of making his doctrines more respected and better observed especially as I do not perceive that the Supreme takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers in his government of the world with any particular marks of his displeasure. Gosh, I mean, these people were just so backwards when it comes to the truth. It really was. They're very intelligent people, obviously, but they were deceived. They were blinded by the goddess world. So in, in Ben Franklin's view, he, he has some doubts about Jesus' divinity. He didn't believe in Jesus being the Christ. So based on John's view of Antichrist, Ben Franklin is Antichrist. But, he, but Ben Franklin couldn't be bothered to investigate whether the gospel was true or not. Because, you know, he's just going to find out anyway. And, you know, if, if it helps people be more obedient, i.e. works, right? So works of the law. If it helps people do better works, then sure, yeah, he, people can believe he's God and divine. But he doesn't actually care. You see, this is the point. Ben Franklin's view of religion was as a way to change behavior externally, like the Pharisees, not a true change of the heart, which is to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus is God and he came down for your sake and my sake to take a punishment that he did not deserve, we deserved it, and to save our souls. He didn't care about that. He didn't care about being born again and having your heart changed. He cared about, okay, well, I guess if it helps society do better works, then, you know, sure, you can believe that. So Ben Franklin, definitely not a Christian. Let's move on to George Washington. Now, I want to draw to your attention a bust of George Washington. You can look this up on Google. It's in Holton, Maine, spelled H-O-U-L-T-O-N. Now, this is a bust of George Washington that's pretty famous, and it's famous for a lot of reasons, but it's this bust that's on top of a black cube that commemorates George Washington as a Freemason. It's kind of hard to see in this picture, but you have the Freemason compass and logo, whatever there, the, the square and compass. And then you have Freemason on the top of this and first president. So there's a couple things here. If you know anything about the black cube, I'm not going to go into that today. We're going to go into that to a future episode when we talk about Islam. But the black cube is definitely an occult symbol that all of them use everywhere. It's just, it's not put there by accident. They had a lot of ways that they could have supported this bust, but yet it was put on a black cube. And then you have the Freemason symbol and you have Freemason on top of first president. So who came first? 
Freemason or first president is Freemason. You can look up this cube for yourself, but that's a pretty telling sign of where George Washington stands. But you also have this apotheosis of Washington, which is a fresco painted by an artist named Constantino Brumidi in the 1800s, and it's painted in the Capitol building. Apotheosis means to become like God, to be like God. And apotheosis of Washington means that, oh, well, Washington basically became God. And if you look at the images of this apotheosis, I mean, basically you have George Washington in the clouds and he's surrounded by angels and he's like this godlike figure holding his hand out and he's got a sword in his hand. There's a lot of occult symbolism. Again, you have the, the fasci, the Roman fasci, which we talked about with the declarations of the human rights and citizen from the French Revolution that represented, you know, I'm sovereign, we are sovereign, we can determine what is good and evil. I mean, if all these... Um, you know, just occult symbols that are just prevalent everywhere. So anyway, the point is this. Apotheosis of Washington. Washington is a Freemason. Freemason before his first president of the Black Cube. I mean, there's a lot of things to look into. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but the point is this. All these people, Madison, Franklin, Washington, they did not believe the gospel. In fact, they very much believed that Christ was not divine. He was just a man. They rejected the Trinity. They were Freemasons. And you know what Freemasonry pays its allegiance to at the very highest levels? That's Lucifer, the light bearer. And they saw Jesus as a good teacher. They saw him just as a man and ultimately that mankind can save itself. If we just employ, you know, the teachings of Jesus and if we just work really hard through discipline, then we'll be able to save ourselves. That is just another religion. And it's actually not quite different from what Catholicism teaches you because Catholicism is a works-based religion. So all of these people who founded the country of the United States, the nation, that looked like a lamb, they all looked Christian, they looked noble, they looked like they believed in Jesus, they looked nice and clean-cut, conservative, Christian, but they actually spoke like dragons. They spoke like the dragon because the dragon was guiding them to speak and to think in the way that they were writing to each other and creating laws and thinking and structuring things. So pretty pretty clear case with the Founding Fathers. Look at, Let's look at the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And this one's going to be just brief, but look, anybody who thinks that this country was founded as a Christian nation, you have to revisit that belief. This is the Constitution, and if we search for the word God... As you can see, there's zero results. The word God does not come at all into the Constitution. Now, we also know the Declaration of Independence. Let's take a look at that. And we can look for God. And we find it one occurrence in the entire thing. And let's see what the context of that occurrence is. In the beginning, let's see. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds, bands which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare and causes which impel them to the separation. So nature's God, who is nature's God? I mean, this is, it's not the God of the Bible. It's like pan, like they're worshiping some sort of pan deity or, you know, naturalistic God. Again, the nature's God is the God of this world. It's not Yahweh, the God of the Bible. I mean, God is obviously sovereign over nature. He created nature, but 
This is not who they're talking about. This is a naturalistic view of God. And if you know anything about naturalistic deism, paganism, pantheism, that God is in everything, these all these all these things point back to Satan, Lucifer. So they believed that God was this impersonal force, not a personal God, and ultimately that we as human beings are still sovereign, that we're good inherently, so we can do it. This is the lie from the Garden of Eden. It's a Luciferian lie that you can save yourself, that you are your own source of authority and power. Now, I want to also look at another document in 1797. This is around the French Revolution. This is the Treaty of Tripoli between the U.S. and Libya. It's a treaty that the U.S. made for shipping, shipping rights and protection with Libya at the time. And there's an interesting thing here, I believe by James Madison wrote this, but it reads Article 11. As the governments of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, so there you go, straight from the horse's mouth. As it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religious, or tranquility of Muslimen, Muslims, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mahometan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinion shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. So in other words, they're saying, listen, we know you're Muslim. Don't worry. We're not a Christian nation. We were never founded as such. So there won't be any religious hostility between us. Don't worry. This is what this treaty is saying. So anybody who thinks this country was founded as a Christian nation, I beg to differ. I really do. So the whole idea that we need to return back to being a Christian nation, America was never a truly Christian nation. Now, there's a lot of Christians here, a lot of Protestants, a lot of Catholics. But what is Christianity? If we think Christianity is institutionalized religion, as it was in Europe, as it was in the papacy, then Christianity will return to America in a sense, in an institutionalized sense. And this is what I'm talking about with the image of the beast and the false prophet and all these things we are covering today. But truly Christian, as in the true gospel, that was never the case. Not really. I mean, there was revivals in America at various times. They had some good revivals in the 1800s. Obviously, it started as colonies that were colonies of Protestants. But as a nation, as a world power, not so much. So what else happened during this time of history? 1800s, 1700s. We know the Age of Enlightenment happened. Let's take a look at that. The Age of Enlightenment, or the Enlightenment, also known as the Age of Reason, was an intellectual and philosophical movement that occurred in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries with global influences and effects. Of course, that's by design. The Enlightenment was pre preceded by the scientific revolution and the work of Francis Bacon, John Locke, among others. So it's all about science and worshiping science and atheism and leftism. And that is, again, by design to contrast against religio-political unity, which is going to be the thing that we get back to. Moving on, philosophers and scientists of the, war, of the period widely circulated the ideas through meetings at scientific academics, Masonic lodges, literary salons, coffee houses, and in printed books and journals and pamphlets. The ideas of the Enlightenment undermined the authority of the monarchy and the Catholic Church and paved the way for political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. This is what we covered in previous episodes. A variety of 19th century movements, including liberalism, communism, and the neoclassicism, 
trace their intellectual heritage to the Enlightenment. Of course they do. The central doctrines of the Enlightenment were individual liberty and religious tolerance in opposition to an absolute monarchy and the fixed dogmas of the church. Do you, now look, look at this from the perspective of everything now we've talked about, that the devil controls you with duality, with extremes. Monarchy with an iron fist, liberalism and communism and rejecting that iron fist. Do you see what's going on here? In opposition to, these two things are opposing one another. Why? To push you between the two, ping pong, ping pong, ping pong, until eventually one gets so bad that you resist and you ask for the other to come back. The bad cop makes you want the good cop. This is what it's all about. It's just a dialectic. It's designed to copy what God does because God, ultimately, what did God do? God shows us the law. The law is the bad cop in a sense. The law is designed to show you that you die, that you are nothing without God, that you need a savior. And the law is designed to push you to the savior. Now that is by design because God is perfectly wise and just and morally perfect. So it's okay for him to do these kinds of things. But when you have flawed human men who are being driven by the devil, the father of lies, trying to copy God and God's way of doing things by using problem-reaction-solution and moving people into their agenda, this is evil. This is wickedness. So I want you to remember the French Revolution, how it was started by the Jesuits. Remember how the Illuminati was founded by a Jesuit, Adam Weishaupt, in 1776, same time as the Declaration of Independence, two years before America was recognized as a world power. You had the Freemasons founded in 1717. You had the Skull and Bones in 1832. Yeah, are these Christian organizations? How many presidents and politicians are part of these organizations? Who do they have their oath to? Even though on paper they tell you, oh, I'm Catholic, or I'm Protestant, or I'm Mormon, whatever. They're actually paying their oath to somebody else. That's how this thing, how this thing works. You have something on the outside, which, you know, the goyim, the cattle are told, and then you have something on the inside, which only the initiated know about. So you have to realize that this country was never, you know, I'm speaking of the United States, was never founded as a Christian nation. It was never intended to be a Christian nation. If anything, it was intended to look like a Christian nation so that, again, the fulfillment of their plan could come through. So founding fathers were not Christians. America was never founded as a Christian nation. America was a world power, a superpower, in fact, that came out of nowhere. It came out of an unpopulated area, and it was a superpower. And it still is a superpower, even though it seems like it is crumbling. This is also by design because it's going to be set up for a revival, a revival where once new powers come in, maybe it's going to be Trump, maybe it's going to be someone else, but it's going to be a return back to the light. And that's exactly what I'm trying to warn people about through this episode, because ultimately that time is coming. The big, bad, deep state's going to be defeated. The globalists have been defeated, and now we're back into the golden days. But really, it's going to be the greatest deception there is, because it's going to be a unification of church and state and the mark of the beast, and all these things are going to start coming out down the pipeline. But either way, America was a world power, came out of nowhere, looks like Christianity, the people who spoke as in through the legislation, through the laws, through how they spoke to one another. They're Luciferian. They spoke like the dragon. 
Separation of church and state was a dialectic that came out of the Enlightenment and that was put into play through the French Revolution and it was put into play into the government of the United States by all these Luciferian people to bring people eventually back to unification. Now, again, this sounds totally crazy. This sounds totally crazy, but it's a dialectic. Separation of church and state is there so that you would eventually go back to unification of church and state. It is an opposition to something. It's nothing new. It's just an opposite to what used to be. If it's an opposite to what used to be, it is designed to bring you back to what used to be. America was the experiment where this dialectic was really going to be put into full bloom. And so far, it's been working. And of course, these things are over hundreds of years. These timetables that these people work on are over hundreds of years. So it's hard to evaluate from the moment of these people's lives what they actually meant. You have to look at history as a whole. That's why it's so important to know your history. But moving on, let's take a look at the Statue of Liberty. Gosh, there's so much to talk about with this one. This is called the Masonic Legacy of Lady Liberty. Now, this is the Statue of Liberty was delivered in the 1800s, late 1800s. I want to read something here about the Statue of Liberty. Statue of Liberty is an American landmark visited by approximately 3.5 million people every year and is recognized internationally as a symbol of American ideals. Well, yeah. But what is the story behind Lady Liberty and her Masonic legacy? Hmm. Many of us had learned an abbreviated tale of, 300, of the 305-foot-tall copper statue in primary school that France had gifted the Statue of Liberty to the United States as a gift to commemorate their successful alliance during the American Revolution. And the larger-than-life figure was placed by Ellis Island in New York to welcome newcomers to the land of freedom. Hmm. What they failed to teach in school, however, is the Statue of Liberty's Masonic origin and ties to Freemasonry. In fact, the Colossus in New York's harbor, it's interesting they use this word Colossus, and you'll find out why, was conceived, financed, built, and installed by Freemasons. Isn't it interesting how there was a French Revolution and we looked at the whole thing with that and how that was basically the beginning of this dialectic and there's an American Revolution and then France where all this stuff started awarded this statue that's very interesting it's a colossus keep that word in mind with seven rays from its head and a threefold flame in its hand it's symbolizing the light the flame of revolution who is a rebel who is a rebel in the Bible who is the biggest rebel in the Bible that's Lucifer who's the light bringer that's Lucifer, who is the one that pretends to be male and female at the same time. That's Lucifer. Who is the Statue of Liberty actually portraying? I'll let you put the pieces together, but we have a few things to look at. What also happened during this time? Well, we have Lucifer Magazine by Theosophical Society, Helena Blavatsky. If you know anything about her, we're going to learn a little about what she believed, but she was a Luciferian, very convicted one, the mother of the New Age movement, basically. And she started the Theosophical Society in 1873. So around all this time, when the Statue of Liberty was being given to the United States and being built, all these other things were starting. So you have to keep your finger on the pulse. Now, Blavatsky started this thing called Lucifer Magazine. And I won't really get into it too much. It's pretty... Obvious from the cover, you have this messenger with a light in his hand. It's called Lucifer. I mean, these people were occultists, Satanists, Luciferians. But let's see what she actually believed. This is from 
one of her books called The Secret Doctrine, and it's volume two. And so you can look this up for yourself, but it's in volume two, and it says this. And now it stands proven that Satan, or the red fiery dragon, the Lord of Phosphorus, and Lucifer, or light bearer, is in us. It is our mind, our tempter, and our redeemer, our intelligent liberator and savior from pure animalism. So in their false religion, they believe that Lucifer is the savior, the one who brings the light of enlightenment and saves us from the dark. The dark and the light. Remember, everything is about duality with them. The dark is the animalistic side of humankind, but the light is the part that's the God side, that we can be like God. And, and Lucifer is the one that shows us how to be that way. This is what they believe. And keep this in mind because this was very much in tandem with the Statue of Liberty. Now, we also know that she had a lot of other things. So I'm going to read here from a website called Theosophy is the Devil. It's actually from JesusIsSavior.com, but this is an article called Theosophy is the Devil. It talks about Helena Blavatsky and Theosophy, but let's see what it says. Her religious philosophy, which holds that all religions are attempts by humanity to approach the absolute, that each religion, therefore, has a portion of the truth. So basically, pluralism, everybody's true. There's only just one God and pantheism. We all worship the same God, the God of this world. I don't think so. Together with Henry Steele Olcott, William Kwan Judge, and others, Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society. This society has since split into a number of organizations, some of which no longer use the term theosophy. So this has actually influenced a lot of different societies to the modern day, which is interesting. But remember also how Benjamin Franklin prayed to some you know, force, you know, so all these things were in the air at that time. And let's see what she has to say. These are all cited. Lucifer represents life, thought, progress, civilization, liberty, independence. Lucifer is the logos, the serpent, the savior. This is from page 171 of volume two of her secret doctrine. It is Satan who is the God of our planet and the only God. Well, she's right, kind of half right that Satan is the God of this world. That's what the Bible says. But, of course, they worship Satan. The celestial virgin, which thus becomes the mother of gods and devils, at one and are at one and the same time, for she is the ever-loving, beneficent deity. But antiquity and reality, Lucifer or Luciferius is the name. So the celestial virgin and Lucifer is the name. Remember all these things we talked about, the Fatima appearance with Mystery Babylon, how all this Mary worship is leading people into worshiping the beast, and these are false signs and wonders. They believe that Lucifer and the celestial version are the same thing. Isn't that interesting? So all these appearances of Fatima are actually the devil in disguise. And of course, we saw from the things that Fatima supposedly commanded people and told them with all these sacrifices and works and, and worshiping her instead of Jesus, that it definitely is satanic. Now, moving on, Lucifer is divine and terrestrial light. The Holy Ghost and Satan at one are at one and the same time. Beginning in the early 19th century and with the incorporation of the Eastern mystical concepts into existing traditions, the Western mystery tradition experienced a major divergence between the esoteric hermetic rites of the Masonic and Rosicrucian traditions and the theosophical schools with the major divergence occurring during the life of Madame Blavatsky that came to be grouped under the general rubric of New Age spirituality. All this stuff you can look into, but this stuff is what led into New Age spirituality today. There's also New Thought, which is more of a Christian delineation. All these things are just 
tactics of the beast to reunite the world into one religion. There's so much in this article about Blavatsky, some of the founding fathers, uh, you know, they're just, it's, it's all the same stuff. But why is this important? You will soon come to realize. I want to read this article by John Algeo in the Theosophical Society called Lift High the Torch. This was written in October 2007, but this will all put it, put it together now. During the summer convention 2006, John Algeo gave two presentations on the topic of H.P. Blavatsky's messages to America. Hmm. She had some messages to give to America. These talks have been transcribed and Theosophy's most holy and important mission was published in the May-June 2007 issue of Quest. In this issue, we have the second component, Lift High the Torch, which is what we're reading here. Previously, we considered the central theme of H.P. Blavatsky's three messages to America of 1888, 1889, and 1891. That theme was Theosophy's most holy and most important mission, namely to unite firmly a body of men of all nations in brotherly love and bend on a pure altruistic work, not on a labor of selfish motives. Gosh, it sounds so, so good, doesn't it? We discussed the fact that the mission in question is not that of the theos Theosophical Society, but of Theosophy, and that Theosophy is enshrined in the heart of, and mind of every human being, for it is the divine wisdom that pervades the cosmos. Gosh, really, what divine wisdom are we talking about here? I, I just know the divine wisdom comes from the Bible. It is the Logos. No, that's Jesus, but they think that's Satan. The articulation of the reason or inner thought that orders all things and is inherent in all things. We live in a world that we experience as insecure, uncertain, painful, fragmented, violent, inimical, or, as Alfred Lord Tennyson said in his great elegy in memoriam, red in tooth and claw. <clears throat> but that word, that world of our experience is not the only world. Our world of experience is a fact, but as Krishna Mutri said of reincarnation, it is not true. Facts are things we make. The, world, the word fact comes from the Latin verb facere, to do or to make. And so facts are what we have done or made. They are our actions and, our, and the karmic consequences of these actions. So a lot of New Age stuff going on here. The word true, on the other hand, comes from the, fa from the same root as the word tree. True is the Bodhi tree of enlightenment. Oh, here we go. It is the Yggdrasil, the, word, the world ash tree of Norse mythology. It is the Aswatana tree of the Bhagavad Gita. It is the Etz Kayim, or the tree of life of the Kabbalah. The world... The word true is also related to the Sanskrit words daru, meaning wood, and daruna, meaning solid, firm, steadfast, as well as to the Latin-derived word durable, and to the Celtic ruins, the Celtic druids, those priests of the trees. True, then, is what is secure, certain, joyous, whole, peaceful, and benevolent. Gosh, it sounds so good, but then they tie it all back to the tree of life. Isn't that what what the devil promised Eve, all these, all these things come back to the Bible, don't they? So interesting. Let's move on. A couple more here. First, consider the illusion when H.P. Blavatsky says, lift high the torch of the liberty of the soul of truth, that all may see it and benefit by its light. Hmm. Those words clearly allude to the Statue of Liberty. And the illusion was a topical one in 1889, when she wrote this message because the statue had been dedicated only three years earlier in 1886. There you go. And thus, all was still much in consciousness of Americans. Moreover, the statue was originally called Liberty Enlightening the World. Huh. And so HPB's phrase, benefit by its light, clearly echoes that name. 
Interesting, isn't it? Moreover, the Statue of Liberty is an ideal symbol for what HPB is talking about in her messages to America. The statue is so familiar to us as to seem trite, but it is a palpable because it but it is a parable because it was the product of the joint effort of people in France and America. Interesting stuff. Supposedly it's an ideal symbol of what she wanted to. Now this is coming from Theosophical Society. So this Statue of Liberty is an ideal symbol of what H.P. Blavatsky, who was a dedicated Luciferian Satanist, she saw this as an ideal symbol for what she wanted to tell America, what America represented to the world. Isn't that interesting? Let's look at this ideal. So you have the seven rays that come from the statue's head. And let's look at what that possibly means in the occult. This is a Wikipedia Theosophy wiki. Seven rays is a concept related to the serpentary septenary principle of manifestation of the universe. The secret doctrine, remember that book that she wrote that talked about Lucifer being the savior? The seven rays refer to the seven primordial beings that appear on the highest plane of manifestation, in whom are the seeds for everything in the universe. They permeate every plane of the cosmos, including the solar system, the planet, and sentient beings. Later authors developed the subject further assigning general characteristics to each ray and applying them to the adepts, religions, human temperament, human activities, colors, crystals, etc. The ray potentials, when evolved into perfection, will constitute in their harmonious union of differences the full achievement of the divine plan. I mean, this is just paganism. It's just primordial paganism. So you, you can look more into this, but I highly recommend discernment. But this is what seven rays represents. And again, this is all intentional. Remember, Freemasons made the Statue of Liberty. So we're going to dive deeper into this. Let's look at Mithraism. If you don't know who Mithraism, he, Mithra was, he's the Roman sun god. Let's take a look. Mithraism, known also as Mithraic Mysteries or the Cult of Mithras, was a Roman mystery religion centered on the god Mithras. Worshippers of Mithras had a complex system of seven grades of initiation. There's that number again. And again, they're using biblical numbers, but they're using it to appropriate to their pagan system. And communal ritual meals. Initiates call themselves syndexioi, those united by the handshake. Interesting, if you know anything about Freemasonry. They met in underground temples, now called Mithraea, singular Mithraeum, which survive in large numbers. The cult appears to have had its center in Rome and was popular through the western half of the empire. Mithraism is viewed as a revival of early as a rival of early Christianity. In the 4th century, Mithraeus faced persecution from Christians because in the 4th century they were uniting Christianity. Remember Constantine united Christianity with paganism, right? It wasn't Christians were not persecuting pagans, okay? The, the union of church and state, which had begun to basically make this new system, to make it, you know, under the, the guise of Christianity, this is the, the new thing that's going to be, was persecuting these pagan ways because you need to be integrated. Christianity, true Christianity was a problem. So they had to integrate it. And now this new integration. Remember, Constantine had on one side of his coin, the sun god, Sol Invictus, and on the other side, the letters for Jesus Christ. So ultimately... Christianity, in, in the sense that it's being used here, is not true Christianity that was persecuting the pagans. It was like a new paganism that was persecuting the old pagans. So keep that in mind. 
But anyway, you had Mithraism. This is, you know, this is just a common thing to look into, but let's let's look more into this whole Mithras and seven rays and all this kind of stuff. So this is a website called Cradle of Civilization, a blog about the birth of our civilization and development. So there's a lot of good stuff. The Roots of the Liberty Statue. A lot of good pictures here you can look into that all come from Mithras, the sun god. Same design with the five rays, seven rays. Statue of Attis at the Shrine of Attis, situated in the campus of Magna Mater in Ostia Manica. This is, again, this design of the Statue of Liberty is nothing new, guys. This is what I'm trying to show you. You have Mithras, these sculptures of the sun god with, you know, his seven-pointed rays, the, the torch of light bringing light to the world. And again, you know who the sun god is. It's Lucifer, the light bearer, and all these people worshipped him under different names. And again, you can see the, the resemblance. This is solar Apollo. Now, this is interesting because, again, you have the, the solar disk that the Catholic Church put around saints and even around Christ. You have this, this solarification of saints. This is from a pagan tradition. Solar Apollo with the radiant halo of Helios in a Roman floor mosaic. This is a not a Christian thing. This is a Roman thing. These, these things are Roman pagan things. Dedication made by a priest of Jupiter, Dolicanus, on behalf of well-being of Salus of the Emperors, to Sol Invictus and the genius of the military unit. Equities, a lot of Latin names here. But anyway, this is Sol Invictus, Mithras. It's all the same thing. Lucifer. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about earlier. The Colossus of Rhodes. This is a huge structure that is now no longer there. But it was a huge structure that basically was built and is basically the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's the same idea. It's this giant pagan idol to Sol Invictus, the sun god, with the seven rays, his arm outstretched, bringing the light. I mean, basically, I mean, it's paganism, Luciferianism in its old version. So let's look at another one here. This is a couple more pictures. Again, these are things you can look at. This is on Flickr. I put the link for these, but you know, they're all the same. Look at these seven rays. This is clearly very much the Statue of Liberty where it was inspired from. And again, if you know the influences, these people are Freemasons, they're occult thinkers. The Statue of Liberty, Iranian history, the, the origin of the Aryans. The Statue of Liberty was erected in Paris, New York, but on the face, myth, New York uh, let's see. The Statue of Liberty was erected in Paris and New York on the face of Mithra, the ancient Iranian sun god. Exactly. And you see pictures here between the two. And I mean, it's just so many commonalities that it's kind of hard to wash that away just easily. But you also have uh, the religion of Mithras and its mysteries. Gosh, there's so many good stuff in here. Again, you can look more in detail on these things, but... Here's what I want to read. Yet the influence of Mithraism is undeniable. Consider, for example, this illustration of Sol Invictus, the invincible sun god of the Mithraic cosmology, which is found in Franz Kuman's 1903 study of Mithraism. It looks uncannily like the American Statue of Liberty in New York City and must have had some substrate, substratal influence on its design. Of course, anybody with two cents of discernment can tell that. Mithra is remade, the Colossus of Rhodes is remade in the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty represents the sun god, which is basically Lucifer, bringing the light to the world. 
the false light. And that's what's going to happen. This is another tweet from uh, showing a picture in the Baghdad Museum. Basically, it's a Mesopotamian architecture of this Mithra sun god. They all, I mean, they had different names, but basically it's a sun god with the rays coming from his head. This is what this represents, okay? The Statue of Liberty is kind of the culmination of all these things. So, you know, you got to be you got to be wise to history. Colossus of Rhodes. The Colossus of Rhodes was a statue of the Greek sun god Helios. Again, there's Helios, Sol Invictus, uh, Mithra. It's all the same stuff. Erected in the city of Rhodes on the Greek island of the same name by Charles of Lindon in, tw- in 280 BC. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was constructed to celebrate the successful defense of Rhodes city against the attack by Demetrius Polio. Polyocrates, who had besieged it for a year with a large army and navy. According to most contemporary descriptions, the Colossus stood approximately 70 cubits or 100 feet, 108 feet high, approximately the height of the modern Statue of Liberty, from feet to crown, making it the tallest statue in the ancient world. Isn't that just something? I mean, look at the look at the uncanny representation. Where is the Statue of Liberty? Look at the two. I mean, come on. There's this two... Too obvious for anybody with eyes to see. So, you know, you just have so many things. I mean, you have also these coins. If you've ever looked up Greek coins, Roman coins, the United States with the with the face of the emperor, based in this case, George Washington, and the eagle on the other side. This is, the meme says, they just changed the name of the company, its location. Right, exactly. It's the same system. I keep telling people it's the same system. This is what you have to pay attention to the same system it's not stop looking at israel you know this is uh this is a silly here's another one it says mithras and jesus an interesting twist this claim would be reversed centuries later when french intellectuals popularized the claim that christianity was a copy of mithraism and that christ had never existed this is still active today in conspiracy circles people think that christianity was copied of the copy of mithraism this was started in the french revolution by atheists and by Jesuits. This claim has been repeated since in various forms, but the essential arguments are that Mithras is the model for the later creation of the character of Jesus Christ, and that like the later Jesus, Mithras was born on the 25th of December of a virgin and visited by Magi, had 12 disciples, celebrated a last supper, and died on a cross. None of these claims have any merit whatsoever. This is true. The so-called Christ myth theory was popularized, if not invented, by two French academics in the 18th century, Charles-Francois Dupuy and Constantine-Francois Chasboeuf. Man, these French names are tough. Dupuy was a professor of rhetoric at the College of Lisieux, Paris, and de Volnay was a philosopher and orientalist, so just occultist, secret society members. In the fervor of the French Revolution of 1789, many revolutionaries denounced Christianity specifically Catholicism, of course, as a myth which had encouraged the rise of the upper classes at the expense of the lower. Well, sure, in some sense, they weren't they weren't wrong. Dupuy's 1794 volume, Origin of the Two Cults, republished in English in 1872 as the origin of all religious worship, popularized the claims listed above as well as many others, but these are well, these were all fabrications of anti-Christian pro-revolutionary writers advancing their own agenda. Of course, they were all... And, and remember, from the irony is this, in, in the French Revolution, remember how they took this prostitute and they exalted her as the goddess of reason and they had basically on the 
the the treaty that they wrote, the, the Declaration of Rights of Man and Every Citizen, they had the, the one eye, we'll look at this a little bit later, but the one eye with the light, the Luciferian symbols, you know, so it, again, it's like they, they talk about how there's Catholicism is based on Mithras, and it is. That's the funny thing. They're telling you the truth, but they're merging Christianity, like true Christianity, with Catholicism. This is where the error is. So they ping pong. They ping pong you from, oh, this is completely false. Go here. But then you realize that that's false, and so it pushes you back and forth. It's a dialectic. You have to remember these things are dialects. These are extremes designed to ping pong you to and fro. It's just dark and light. False light and dark. It's good cop, bad cop, and they're both on the same side. Designed to gaslight you and to push you into the ultimate solution, which is a one world system under Satan. But you had uh, some other things too I want to talk about with this whole new age stuff. This is from the Temple of the Presence. Gosh, what a name. We have never truly been separated from God. This is their first sentence. This is a new age theosophy type of thing. And again, just to realize what these people believe. Who are the who are the people behind the French Revolution, the Statue of Liberty, the Declaration of Independence, the founding of this country? But this is the temple of the presence, whatever this is. We have never truly been separated from God. Oh my gosh, if that's not the serpent slithering its tongue, I don't know what it is. And the ascended master teachings. Let's see what they are. Here's one of them. The threefold flame. Hmm. The threefold flame of life is the immortal flame within the heart of the children of light and sons and daughters of God and is an actual extension of the heart of the I am presence of each life stream. So whatever that means, that threefold flame is what the flame of the Statue of Liberty is. The Statue of Liberty has three little flames coming out of it. That's by design. So we should look into this and see what it actually means. Let's look a little deeper. This is again from the Ascended Master teachings. Let's see what, uh, here we go. Beliefs about Ascended Masters. Threefold flame. Okay, so masters would be Jesus, Confucius, Gautama, Buddha, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Saint Paul of Tarsus, Melchizedek, Archangel Michael, Metatron, Pope John Paul II, Serapis Bay announced on May first, twenty-five. John Paul has entered into the oneness of the eternal life with his own God presence. Quan Yin, Saint Germain, and Cthulhu. So Jesus was just among one of these masters that basically. They all have the threefold flame. Even Pope John Paul, they're all, you know, Pope John Paul, who even though he was totally antichrist, you know, they're all just kind of the same. Metatron, Melchizedek, let's just lump a bunch of stuff. Confucius, this is what these people believe. So they reject the gospel. The people who orchestrated the threefold flame have all of these things in common. Theosophy, that we never were separated from man. There's no, there's no really, there's no sin. You know, there, Jesus was just a teacher do you see these common things, commonalities? Keep all that in mind, man. And let's look at one more thing, the dollar bill. Of course, everybody knows the dollar bill. But most people don't understand what it says at the top. Okay, you have Novus Ordo Seclorum is in the bottom. There's a pyramid with a little capstone with the one eye. And at the top, it says Anuid Coeptis, which means he approves of our undertaking. Now, who is the he in this sentence? The he is the one eye that's glowing. That's the eye of Lucifer, the enlightenment. Now, if you look closely, 
this is the left eye. This is the left eye that's basically open. And when we'll get that, we'll get back to that with the Passion of the Christ and basically why that's significant. But ultimately, this is one eye that's opened, and it's the pyramid with the one eye that was on the French Revolution. It's still on the dollar bill. I mean, they're telling you up front what their plan is. What is their plan with this pyramid? They're building the pyramid. It started in 1776. At the bottom of the pyramid is the Roman numerals. Again, they're using Roman numerals, which is interesting. They're using Roman numerals to build the base. And eventually that base is going to lead people to the capstone, which is what? The Enlightenment era, the Golden Age, the age where people will recognize Lucifer as God and worship him and worship the system. This is what the system is being built up to. The whole dialectic of left versus right is just to ping pong you up the Kabbalah tree from one side to the other until you get to the crown, to the crowning achievement, which is the capstone. And it's plainly written on the dollar bill. Everybody knows about the pyramid with the one eye, but not too many people know about the he approves of our undertaking. Who is the one that approves? Is it the God of the Bible or the approves of a new world order? I don't think so. Every time there's been a new world order, God has come down and destroyed it. So keep all this in mind, because at the end of the day, here's the conclusion with all this. Okay, The founding fathers were not Christian. They rejected Christianity. The Constitution nor the Declaration of Independence have anything to do with God. The Declaration of Independence has one time that it mentions God, and it mentions him in like a nature's God, some sort of weird pantheistic type of God, which is obviously not the God of the Bible. The Statue of Liberty was built by Freemasons who worship Lucifer, who were influenced by theosophy, which is Luciferian, and has sevenfold flame or sevenfold rays on its head, threefold flame, all these Luciferian symbols about Lucifer bringing the light to the world, which honors America's role in this capstone project to bring the world to the woman riding the beast. We also know that according to Helena Blavatsky, who was basically the mother of the New Age movement and a cultist, the Luciferian, that the Statue of Liberty is the ideal symbol, not just a symbol, but the ideal symbol for her messages. And of course, we know that she worshiped Lucifer. That means the Statue of Liberty is most certainly an idol of Lucifer that's supposed to represent America's mission on the earth. And if that's the case, it's very interesting that John saw a beast, which is a world power, that looks like a lamb, looks like Christianity, but speaks like a dragon. All this light and love and brotherhood looks like Christianity. But in reality, it's satanic. We also know that America basically is home to many false Christian things. Like we mentioned, televangelism, televangelism, prosperity gospel, the chosen. Gosh, we're going to get into all these things that are coming out of America. False signs and wonders, TBN, the prosperity gospel, ecumenism. All these things are coming to bring people from the Protestant Reformation back to the mother church, back into religion, back to the need for a centralized authority that has all power. So the conclusion is very simple, guys. America is the false prophet. I don't think there's any world power that fits the bill, especially because America came up around a mortal wound 
that the first beast received and has slowly worked its magic to create in it a culture that is primed and ready to accept Luciferian values. And this is going to happen. We are on the road to this outcome at the very moment. So keep your eyes open. Now, what about the Puritans and Pilgrims? Well, again, they were Christians. They didn't found a country. They came and they had colonies and they were, they were true Protestants. But a beast is a political power and America became a political power in the late 1700s, which was about 100 years or more after the Protestants came. And by that point, America was already infiltrated by Luciferian Illuminati Enlightenment thinkers. And again, we know that the definition of Antichrist that John saw, he wrote about it in several of his letters. And one of them is that you deny, basically, Jesus is the Messiah. You also deny that Jesus came in the flesh that was incarnate. So a lot of these people deny that Jesus even existed. And of course, you, you deny that he's the one way to salvation. Oh, he's just a teacher. He's just a good teacher with good principles. Let's rewrite the Bible. That's Antichrist. And so these people who founded the country were Antichrist because they denied Jesus. So by John's definition, is America an Antichrist power? Yes, it was started by Antichrist people. Do people think America is a Christian nation? Does it look like a Christian nation? Yes, certainly. People love to think that America is a Christian nation. We've got to get back to our Christian roots. There were no Christian roots unless you want to get back to having just colonies and puritanical beliefs. Now, does America actually speak like a dragon through its philosophy and legislation? And the answer is yes. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all these things seem good, but they replace the Bible with a secular document, a secular way of doing things where ultimately man is sovereign. Man is rewriting the law for himself. You don't need a Bill of Rights if people are born again and follow the Bible and are accountable to Jesus. You don't need a Bill of Rights. You have the Bible. You have the most profound information in history. But if you believe you can rule yourself, you create your own rules, you create your own constitution. So the Constitution has replaced the Bible. So it's the Declaration of Independence. But ultimately... America will shepherd people back into worship of the beast. And of course, the big question is, how is this possible if there's separation of church and state? And I will again ask you to entertain the idea that it is very possible that we are moving in that direction. We're moving in the direction of unification of church and state. And you will see that in the next episode when we talk about the image of the beast and how all these things are happening in American culture and how that will be the image, right, the template, let's put it that way, for the rest of the world to follow. And this is how the kings of the earth will give their power to the beast, to the woman riding the beast, and will usher in the mark of the beast and all these other things. So fun times to look forward to, but we know how this story ends. So I hope this has been educating for you, especially if you're a patriot. There's nothing wrong with wanting the good of your country, the good of your people. Uh, certainly the Israelites were patriotic in some sense for their country. But remember what this country was founded on. Remember that this country was never founded as a Christian nation and that the Bible and a relationship to Jesus is all you really need. You do not need to be seduced with all of these patriot things and 
all these things that are pushing you in one direction against another direction. The Great Awakening versus the Great Reset. Which side do you belong, red or blue? Don't partake in those things. You have allegiance to Christ, and that's about it. I am not a patriot anymore, and I'm also not somebody who's against patriotism. In sense, I think it's good to be, I think people are naturally conservative. I think it's good to want the good of your people in the country that you live in. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, the Bible tells us do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep the narrow road. Don't swerve too much into wanting all these patriotic things because they can become a snare for idolatry. You're going to look for people like Trump to save you. You're going to look for new systems. You're going to look for constitution to save you. That we just need to go back. No, we don't need to go back to the constitution. We need to go back to the Bible, a true biblical understanding and being born again. That's what we need. We don't need the Constitution. You, If you have the Bible and you have a renewed conscience, God is in charge of everything. And if God is ruling in your heart, then you will be doing the right thing. Of course, not every single time, but you will, you will want to do the right thing. But if God is not ruling in your heart, you are going to be deceived. All these people were deceived. They thought they could rule themselves. They thought they were coming up with these clever systems to, you know, rule the behavior of man and to help usher in this enlightenment age. But they were deceived. The heart is desperately wicked. You cannot lean on your own understanding. So, a lot to consider, but hopefully this has opened your mind. In the next episode, we're going to look at how specifically America will fulfill this false prophet role. Today was more about the historical political aspect. And hopefully you see that. This power, the United States, is the only power that fits the bill on John's prophecy of the second beast. So, until next time, God bless, stay healthy, and take care.